Morning, everyone. Are we ready to get into the most depressing book of Scripture again this week? Yay! Yes, of course we are. We're in the book of Judges, and just to remind us that the theme of the book of Judges deals with the lack of biblical leadership, and when there was a lack of biblical leadership, all things go sour. It becomes incredibly frustrating for the people, and the people tend to fall into very negative bad habits, and without biblical leadership, that mentorship, those examples, people tend to just live any way they want to. And when people live any way they want to, we have chaos in our culture, in our families, and even in our nations. And so we have to be very careful in the leadership that we choose, the leadership that we choose to follow, as well as how we live in front of them and live by their examples. Super, super important to have biblical, godly leadership in front of us in our homes, families, as well as in our churches and nation. And the book of Judges will teach us over and over and over again what it is like when we don't have leadership and when we cry out to God, how he responds, and how without consistent leadership we fall back into the habits of compromise. Now, how many of you have heard of the saying, um, what goes around comes around? Or something similar to that. Right. Um, we need to stop saying that. Okay, because that is an unbiblical concept. Now, while we've all heard it, I know we've all fought it before, like, oh, they're going to get their just rewards. They're going to get it in the end. I don't have to worry about paying them back because they're going to get it. Well, Scripture has a lot to say about that concept of paying good deeds and receiving good in return or doing bad things and getting payment for those bad things in return or justice. But uh, Scripture has a much different way of communicating that Middle Eastern philosophy view of karma. Like, you got to do enough good to make up for the bad, and if you do bad, you got to wait for it, because if your car breaks down, it's because you did something. Or if you got bad health, it's because you did something. Or if something goes wrong in our culture, in our society, in our nation, it's because we did something. And God does not hold us to that same exact standard as karma, the way it is used. So we're going to address that today and look at a biblical approach to how do we deal with those things that we see in our lives that are bad and negative, and how does God deal with it, especially in the life of his people. Now, as we begin this uh, series and we look at Judges 1, 1 and 2 last week, we're looking at the next couple verses in Judges, and already in verse 1, we got introduced to these people. Let me just read those first two verses again very quick. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, that is Jehovah, who is going to go fight against the Canaanites. And the Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. Very first verse, we got introduced to this group of people called the Canaanites. And it seems as though all the, there's always people in scripture with this last little addition to their name, ites, the ites. And if you can never pronounce the name, you just go with ites, because it's somewhere probably in the name, and, and people will go, I totally understand who you're talking about. You're talking about some of the bad guys. But the Canaanites are a real interesting group of people. Now, I don't want to bore you with a history lesson, so if I get a majority of like 90% of the people that raise their hand, I'll just skip this part and go to the next thing. Does everybody know the history of the Canaanites? A couple people. Well, that's not 90%. We're in the one percenters. Uh, but, uh, so... 
the Canaanites have a real interesting story. They are never looked upon in Scripture as good. They are always the bad people. And it stems from this guy named Noah. Everybody knows Noah. Most of us do. Well, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Not the three stooges, the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham, Ham was the youngest of the sons, so I guess I should say it, Shem, Japheth, and Ham. But those were the three sons with their wives who were on the ark with Noah and his wife. Those eight people were rescued in the flood. So after the flood happens, and in Genesis chapter 9, uh, the waters receded, everyone went back onto the earth, all the animals went out of the ark. Noah, his first task outside of the sacrifice, do you know what his other task was? Really the first thing he did outside the ark? Planted a vineyard. He planted a vineyard. Now we know how vineyards work. It takes about seven years for a vine to produce fruit good enough and valued enough and just at the right sweetness to turn it into wine. And in Genesis chapter 9, we're told that Noah went out and planted a vineyard and then got drunk from the wine. So we know it was about seven years after the flood. He plants the vineyard. First thing he does, Noah, you just saw God's hand in rescuing you. You go get drunk. It took seven years to get there, but he got drunk. And we're told in Genesis 9 that he went into his tent drunk naked. All right? He really drank hard that night. So hard that it must have aroused the camp, the people living with him, the rest of his family, because his son, Ham, goes into the tent, sees his father in that condition, comes back out of the tent, and do you know what he does? Hey, guys, guess who's naked in the tent, drunk? Starts making fun of his dad. Well, his two older brothers, Shem and Japheth, are furiated, not with Noah, but with how Ham disrespected their father. And so they walk into the tent without looking, and they take a blanket or something and cover up Noah, and Noah, probably oblivious to everything that's going on, wakes up the next morning and realizes what happened. Now, my son came in, saw me drunk, and he cursed his son, Ham. Ham is the father of Canaan, who became the Canaanites. And Noah very clearly says, because of this disrespect, for whatever reason, Scripture doesn't give any commentary about Noah's drunkenness in that text. But Scripture is very clear that the way that Ham treated his father with the disrespect, making fun of him and ridiculing him and making that sin well-known and a disgrace, Ham and his descendants, which are found in Canaan, the Canaanites, were cursed, basically saying, may it be for the rest of your existence as Canaanites, may you serve your brothers as slaves. May you be cursed of God. There is no room for you in God's family. The Canaanites, fast forward about 1,500 years, maybe even 2,000 years, are now dwelling in the land of the Israelites that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the descendants of Ham, who were cursed off the face of the earth, became the mortal enemies of the Israelites. They were, as much as we are, distant 
relatives to them because we all came from just four sets of parents, Noah and his three sons. They were relatives at least, but there was a lot of animosity. They were not included in the promise that God made to Abraham. And the Canaanites became enemies. They were enemies, and they were the ones mainly possessing the land of promise. The Canaanites, the Canaanites, the Canaanites come up over and over and over again, suppressing God's people, being overthrown by God's people, and then eventually being completely kicked out of the promised land, although that does not happen in the book of Judges. For 350 years, Israel struggles with this group of people who are mortal enemies to the Israelites. Everyone in Israel knew who the Canaanites were. All the Canaanites knew the story of Noah and the sons and what Israel had become. They were not friendly in their relationships. They were enemies. And so that is why Joshua and the Israelites said, who goes up against the Canaanites? And the Lord answers, Judah goes. And so that brings us up to speed. The Canaanites, mortal enemies for at least 2,000 years of God's promised people. In comes verse 3. So we already have the challenge. Who's going to fight our battles? God says, Judah's going to go fight them. Go fight them. And verse 3 brings up the context of an alliance within the nation of Israel, within the 12 tribes of Israel. The men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We, in turn, will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. This is not rocket science, and this is not some huge biblical revelation. This is, you might say, just good common sense, incredible military sense, but it's just good common sense. We're going to go fight an enemy. If I'm going to go fight an enemy, I want to make sure that I have one of two things at my side. Incredible technology that's a lot better than theirs, or a lot more people than them. I'd like to have both. Judah was looking at the situation going, you know, we can go into our land and take it if we want, but if we get some friends to go with us, our fellow Israelites, another tribe, we've got double the resources, double the people, double the power, and we take our land, and I'll help you repay, and I'll take your land for you. Because God had given and divided up the nation of Israel, pretty much what you see is Israel as a map today, into basically, well... It was 13 different sections with the Levites getting no land whatsoever because they were priests and were to be taken care of by the people. They didn't get an inheritance of land. They had a special role of being priests and uh, taking care of the temple and the tabernacle and things like that, the sacrificial system and the teaching. Um, but basically, all the tribes were given a piece of land saying, go get it. And they realized at the very beginning, it's a lot easier to go get the land and to take it and to own it and to get rid of the, the people that were on it, to, to go to war, if I have more people involved. So that's exactly what Judah said. Let's make an alliance. So they make an alliance, and they go up to the territory that was given to Judah first. And so verse 4 picks up the attack. Now we have the military. We have Judah and the Simeonites, uh, the armies, and we have... What other group is, are they fighting against? Who are they fighting against? The Canaanites. The Canaanites. And so here in verse 4, uh, really verse 4 through 6, we're given 
uh, the skinny on what happens in the battle. And it says, When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Pezerites. The, the, the Pezerites are, um, uh, it is really hard to find any information about them. Um, they no longer exist. They no longer exist even in the book of Judges. They, they're somehow related to the Canaanites in some way, but they don't know exactly how. Um, but they were also squatters on God's promised land, and they were allies of the Canaanites. So when the Canaanites started to get attacked, the Pezerites came into their aid, and so both Judah and the Simeonites fighted the Canaanites and the Pezerites. whole bunch of ites. But they fought them, and it was the... the well, I'm going to give you the answer. It was not the military power of Judah and the Simeonites that gained them victory over the enemies. It was God. He says very clearly, even though I used you, even though I used your men, even though you used military tactics, even though you used weapons of war, it was God who delivered them into their hands. That is a beautiful reminder, not only for Judah and the Simeonites and the rest of Israel, but even for us. We don't go fight our own battles. The Lord fights on our behalf when we're fighting righteous fights. When we're arguing and trying to win a debate, well, God may not be in that. But when his name is on the line and his people stand up for his name, God fights in our stead. What better ally to have than the master, than the king of kings and lord of lords, to fight any battle we have? And just so Israel knew from the very beginning, yes, I want Judah to go fight, but it's not because Judah's super strong. It's not because they're going to have a line of kings that Jesus would one day come from. No, 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 no. It's because I, the Lord, gave them into your hands. No time to pat themselves on the back and say, good job, good job, everybody. We, 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 how can we lose when it's us fighting? Well, it's the Lord fighting. And they are never to forget that valuable lesson that happens within the first six verses of that book. God gives them the victory. It is him who puts the enemies into our hands. Not our power, not our abilities. And in fact, we're told in that verse 4, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. 10,000 men died in that battle. doesn't tell us how many days, but it does tell us that the losing army lost 10,000 men. That, that's huge. That's huge. What a defeat. And in fact, we're told further in verse 5 and 6, some more details about the battle. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek, who fought against and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and the Pezerites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. That showed him. Now cut your thumbs off and your toes. Is there a significance to that? Well, it's, first of all, in military terms, it's very hard to hold, in our day and age, a gun or a club or a sword or a spear with no thumbs. I mean, thumbs is one of those things that are pretty invaluable when it comes to fighting. And so is, believe it or not, the big toe. How many times have you stubbed the toe and all you do is hobble for a couple days? Oh, yeah. Imagine missing the big toes. That's stability. And when you're going to fight a battle, 
you need not only stability, but to be able to hold your weapon. And so they took the king, and they took his toes, and they took his thumbs, but there's actually a reason for it. Because we're told in verse 7, why did they cut off his toes and his big and his thumbs? Because in verse 7, and then Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. So Adonai Bezek, which is the name of a king, the king there, the one in charge of the Canaanites and the Pezzarites in that area, um, the town is named after him, and he's the Lord. And in fact, that word Adonai, if that sounds familiar, it should because it's just the Hebrew name for the word Lord, which is often associated with God when we call him Lord in Scripture. But it was a common title given to any king of the land, Adonai. Um, and we're told why they cut off his thumbs and his toes. Because that's what he did to everyone he captured. And what a lowly, humble position that he put those kings in when he beat them. Not only cut off their thumbs and toes, but they were allowed to live from his table scraps whenever they fell from his tables. Like a dog. Like a dog. I mean, just... That's not how God tells us to treat our enemies, is it? As we saw last week, how do we treat our enemies? Love them. Love them to death, and it will be like hot coals being heaped upon their foreheads. You just love them, love them, love them. Love them until they can't handle it anymore and they have no charges against you because the only charge is love. But they did this to him, maybe as a little bit repayment, not as karma, because karma has a completely different meaning and understanding, but he, the, the irony is certainly not lost on the king. He realizes exactly what has happened to him, exactly what he's done to others. The whole lesson in that is God is the one who gave victory to Judah and his kin. It was Judah and his kin, the God of their army, who gave them absolute victory in this situation. Now, there is a very important principle because Scripture does talk about this idea, well, this truth about reaping what you sow. And maybe that's a much better way of understanding um, how this idea of karma may play out in a Christian's life, is understanding the biblical context and language of what God says is reaping and sowing. And I know we've heard that many times before, but I want to look at a verse in Galatians, Paul, I think, does it beautifully. In Galatians chapter 6, he talks about this principle of reaping and sowing. He says in chapter 6 of Galatians, verse 7 and 8, he says the following, Do not be deceived. That's always a wake-up kind of phrase. Don't be deceived. It's just like when Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you. Okay, not only... I mean, everything that he says is vitally important, but... He's kind of giving you a clue here that this is the moment that you wake up. This is the moment that you really pay attention. This is the moment where you put your pen to that notebook and you say, okay, what, what do I have to focus on here? And so Paul says, don't be deceived. What follows next is super important. He says, God cannot be mocked. Okay, God cannot be mocked. Uh, does that mean he can't be made fun of? Well, yeah, that's part of it. God can't be ridiculed? Well, yeah, that's part of it. God can't be taken for granted? Yes, that's part of it. 
but Paul defines what mocking looks like in God's context. Because he says God cannot be mocked, and in the same sentence he says, a man reaps what he sows. And Paul further defines what that looks like. He says, whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Paul says there is this spiritual principle in our lives. It's not called bad luck. It's not getting what you deserve. It's this principle, if I live my life in a way that satisfies my sinful flesh, then there should be no surprise that my life is characterized by sin. By sin. It it doesn't infuriate me, but it does certainly... I think it hurts me more than anything else. I'm talking to someone who is a a believer, a Christian, who who lives their Christian life to the fullest, who who is active, who is uh, just beautiful in their outward expression of Christianity. And for whatever reason, we we have a heart-to-heart conversation, and the, the, the person just lays out all this misery in their life. They lay out all the the heartache, the complications, the struggles, um, the falling to temptation that they have. They're really struggling with sin. And I'm not talking about struggling with, uh, you know, how do I know God forgives me kind of thing, but, but they're just, they're a mess. But from the outside at church, they look like a poster child for a Sunday school teacher, but inside, they are just miserably sold to sin. might be one sin or it might be multiple sins. They are just aching with sinful influence. And I start the process of talking, and I, and, I, and I ask a simple question, or a couple simple questions. My first question generally is, tell me about your spiritual habits. Tell me about your spiritual habits. And it never fails. Number one spiritual habit everybody lists is what? I go to church. Or, you know, I listen online. Or, you know, there's a couple of, you know, famous preachers that I like to listen to when I get a chance to listen to their podcast. But they always start their spiritual list with, well, I go to church. I'm saying, okay, I, d- I don't want to know the activities. I just want to know your spiritual habits. What are your spiritual habits? And, and they, sometimes you get a puzzled look, and I, I go, okay, um, tell me about your prayer life. Oh, when I remember, sometimes I'll pray for a meal. I said, okay, that's, I'll give you credit. There's a star, okay, you, you did a prayer, but no, tell me more about your prayer life. And I get the kind of look that I'm getting right now, kind of blank and uh, a little sleepy. And um, I'll then say, okay, tell me about your, your habit when it comes to reading God's Word. I don't need to know what Bible plan you're reading because that's not what makes someone a good Christian, but, but just tell me about how Scripture affects your life. In fact, what Scripture did you read this morning that you thought impacted your day? Or what Scripture's in your mind right now? And again, I get this kind of a dazed look of... And then an honest reply, I really don't have any 
spiritual habits. My only spiritual habit that I can count is going to church mostly twice a month, which is the national average of people's attendance today, twice a month. And in the back of my mind, and the reason why I'm very freely sharing this with you, because as I look around here, not a single one of you has fallen into this camp, okay? So don't think I'm talking about someone else here. In fact, no one here at Calvary. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking to myself, I'm not surprised one bit that you're having a hard time at life right now. I am not surprised that your marriage is on the brink of failure. I'm not surprised that you are falling to temptation day in and day out over and over again to the same thing. I'm not surprised about the type of things you're thinking about. I'm not surprised about the type of things you're watching. I'm not surprised about the language you're using. I'm not surprised your life is miserable. I'm not surprised. And they look at me like, what do you mean you're not surprised? I said, well, look at what you're feeding your soul. Look at how you're caring for your spiritual well-being, the soul that God has redeemed. How are you caring for that precious gift of eternal life? You're not. So don't come to me, and I don't say this, don't come to me and whine that you're having a tough time if you're not doing what God has already told you is the basics of living the Christian life by talking to him and thinking about him. We talk to him through prayer. We think about him through his word. And so if you're not praying and if you don't have God's word in your life, no kidding, you're having a tough time. That's a huge generalization, I know. I know it's a huge generalization, but it is there for a reason because Paul says, don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. If you are sowing, if you are giving yourself to sinful pleasures and sinful things, then don't be surprised when you feel far away from God and God doesn't hear your prayers. Now, the beautiful thing is, there is a way to overcome that as one of his children. But don't be shocked if you're having a tough time at life, if you feel that it's not worth living, if you feel that everywhere you turn, you're getting bad luck. Don't be surprised. Don't go whining to people like life is hard and unfair. No kidding. Life is still hard and unfair when you're near God but you know how to deal with it. You know that your peace and your comfort and your victory doesn't come from your circumstances, but from the mighty God and Father and his Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no surprise. No need to complain, no need to whine, no need to fuss. If you are far from God in your practices and heart, that you will not be far from God in your life. No surprise. And the reverse is absolutely true as well. I have seen people go through miserable circumstances of, of, of cancer and job loss and death, and their family responds with absolute praise to God, not ignoring the hurt, but realizing it matters nothing to my relationship with God. When you are near to God, the most earth-shattering things that you can experience will feel trivial because you are in the presence and being held in the hands of a God who is anything but trivial, who is massively interested in your well-being, not your comfort, 
but your character. And he will do all within his might to make you more and more like his son. And he does that through trials and tribulations. Now, I don't want you to feel and think that the way you act and the way you respond is somehow a way that God just automatically has to deal with you. Because I, I, I want to share with you something from Psalm 103. And Psalm 103 has a wonderful, marvelous verse. Uh, well, I hate saying Psalm 103 has a wonderful verse because every verse is wonderful in all of Scripture. But in particular, verse 10, 11, and 12. Listen to these verses in Psalm 103. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. This is speaking about God. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. There's no karma payback from God to our sins. Okay. Or does he repay us according to our iniquities? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So I started by saying that this idea of karma, that we get paid back what we deserve, is not a biblical truth. The biblical truth for God's people is he doesn't pay us back what we deserve, does he? He gave everything your sin deserves to whom? Jesus, who didn't deserve it one bit. He got every one of your sin punishments and bore it willingly upon a cross because of his great love for you. And all he says in return is love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Love, love, love. If God paid us back what we deserved, I'd be dead. I'd be dead. So would you. You'd be dead. He'd smite you off the face of the earth for the way you think. He'd smite you off the face of the earth for the gossip and slander. He'd wipe you off the face of the earth for your arrogance, your pride, lying, you name it. He does not have to put up with it. He can just simply say, never existed, and you would be gone from every family photo if you wanted. But he didn't want that. He did not want karma to pay you back. He wanted his son to step in and intervene and do something you could never do to get a reward that you could never earn, to enjoy a life you never deserved. And he's given it to you for free. Not really all that depressing, is it? I mean, I know I built up the whole depressing thing about the book of Judges, but there is amazing gospel truth in there that just elevates the heart and soul. And so now when you go back to Galatians 6 and read, okay, don't be deceived, God won't be mocked, what you reap you'll sow, if you sow to the flesh you're going to reap the flesh, if you sow to the Spirit you'll reap eternal life. All of a sudden it doesn't feel that hard, that much of a task, that much of a burden to go, I probably should really be thankful that God does not pay me back what I deserve. Maybe I should talk to him a little bit more. 
maybe I should read about him a little bit more. And more importantly for us, maybe I should treat that person a little bit differently and not pay them back what they deserve, but pay them back with something called grace. So, as our worship team comes forward this morning, I want to close us in prayer. Father, we know that you do not give us what we deserve, but you laid upon our sin, the full of it, upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ on the cross. So, Father, thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to stand and shout your praise to the world. For we do not deserve your tender mercy and grace. It's undeserved, unmerited love and favor. Help us, Father, to love others like that, to respect others that way, and to treat others better than they deserve as a way to demonstrate our appreciation and eternal thanksgiving for your goodness to us. And in Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen. Please stand. This last song, uh, watching back over some of the live streams before we got here, uh, Hannah had it introduced a couple times, and I thought it was a really, really good song. I've loved this song for a lot of time. Uh, and now with what uh, Hannah was speaking about, we can be introspective and look in on ourselves. The song is called King of My Heart. Is, is God the king of your heart? Are you the Lord of your life? Are you the king of your own heart? Or is he the king of your heart? Is your action showing that? Is your prayer life and your spiritual life showing that? So just look in on yourself um, during this song and look out to sing about how good God is.
down You're never gonna let You're never gonna let me down You're never gonna let You're never gonna let me down You're never gonna let You're never gonna let me down does not give us what we deserve. Amen? Amen? Have a great week, everyone. I know that it is snowy out, so if you do take a little bit longer to walk outside because you're talking to somebody, I understand. No one's in trouble. God bless and see everybody next week. Bye. <laughs>